You are listening to Neurosalience, the OHBM podcast. Welcome to the Organization for Human Brain Mapping Neurosalience podcast. I'm your host, Peter Banatini. Here, I interview neuroscientists and discuss their work, as well as the latest developments, issues, and controversies in the field of brain mapping. Today, I'm talking with David Poppel. David Poppel is professor of psychology and neuroscience at New York University. Since 2014, he has also been the director of the Department of Neuroscience at Max Planck Institute for Empirical Aesthetics. In 2019, he co-founded the Center for Language, Music, and Emotion, an international joint research center co-sponsored by the Max Planck Society and New York University. Since 2021, he has now also become the managing director of the Ernst Strongmann Institute in Germany. And we talk a little bit about that uh, at the beginning of the podcast. David grew up in Munich, Germany, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Caracas, Venezuela. He obtained his bachelor's degree in 1990 and doctorate in 1995 from MIT. He received training in functional brain imaging as a postdoctoral fellow at the School of Medicine in the University of California, San Francisco. From 2000 to 2008, he directed the Cognitive Neuroscience of Language Laboratory at the University of Maryland College Park, where he was professor of, of linguistics and biology. He joined New York University in 2009. He was a fellow at the Berlin Institute for Advanced Study and has been a guest professor at several institutions. He's received the Daimler Chrysler Berlin Prize of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, as well as uh, many other honors. David's a researcher who employs behavioral and cognitive neuroscience approaches to study the brain basis of auditory processing, speech perception, and language comprehension. The research in his laboratory addresses questions such as, what's the cognitive and neuronal parts list that form the basis for language processing? The fundamental constituents used in speech and language. How is sensory information transformed into the abstract representations that underlie language processing? What are the neural circuits that enable language processing? So he uses an array of tools, including fMRI, but everything from single unit recordings all the way on up, and he's planning on actually getting into uh, more animal research. Uh, and he also thinks very deeply about cognitive neuroscience and the appropriate models for, uh, for what's actually happening, uh, which we're far from fully understanding. So well-known contributions from his laboratory include the functional anatomic model of language, which he developed with Greg Hickok, uh, research on lateralization of auditory processing, which he also developed with, with Greg Hickok, and experimental work on the role of neural oscillations in audition and speech perception. He also writes and lectures about methodological questions at the interdisciplinary boundary between cognitive science research and brain research. So he has, I would recommend several, several of his opinion papers, which are extremely uh, interesting and, and informative. So with that, I'd like to go into the podcast. Thank you. David, welcome. 
Hey, Peter, are we on here? Are, are we, we are on. on? Are we off? Because I, I, I need to say stuff. I've got stuff to say. So <laughs> well, this is the we, place. We got to get right into it. All right. <laughs> this is the place, and and this is where stuff will be said and and thoughts will be had. Um, so thanks for thanks for coming. Uh, no, no, thanks, thanks for uh, thanks for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to chatting. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Well. Great. Uh, we'll get right right into it. So. Um, uh, in my introduction to you, I, I, I mentioned Max Planck, but uh, it, uh, it turns out that uh, you now have a, a different job. Uh, so now you're both at NYU as, uh, as a professor at NYU and also uh, you just switched. So mm -hmm. do you wanna get into describing? Uh, yeah, I'm happy to, um, I can tell you a little bit. The, 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 uh, so I've been working um, between kind of going back and forth between New York and Frankfurt, Germany for a few years and um, uh, working for the an institute of the Max Planck Society, which is you know a big publicly funded um, institution, has they have eighty four or eighty six institutes across many fields, really wonderful research opportunities. And um, last summer, I was approached by the Max Planck Society to um, think about a different position affiliated with them, slightly differently structured, and um, to um, help um, help run a systems neuroscience institutes much um, in also in frankfurt it's called the ernst strungmann institute or esi az you call it um which is a institute that's been it's, it's about 10 years old it's been focused almost entirely on non-human primate research um, with very senior pis wolf singer is the most senior person there pascal Fries, and a number of other really fantastic group leaders have been there and they're in the, in the goal to reorganize a little bit and also to expand the scope to include more human neuroscience and cognitive neuroscience. And I agreed to take over this institute. So now I'm still going back and forth between New York and Germany, but now to this more really neurosciencey focused center, which is also a good fit to my own interests and ambitions and what I think are cool opportunities for the future of research. Okay, cool, cool. And, and you, and, uh, uh, you had mentioned to me before the podcast that you're getting a 7T, a human 7T as well, and, and uh -huh. uh, other types of things. We're doing both primate and... and yeah, human. there's, I mean, so the, the infrastructure, there's, of course, a really first-rate infrastructure to do uh, physiology work there. I and mean, it's been the bread and butter of these institutions, but you know, partly the, the aim is now to grow pretty aggressively in the human neuroscience and actually in more collaborative situation with clinical work. And um, so there will be a 70, multiple three keys, uh, multiple MEG systems actually of different forms, squid based and optically pumped magnetometers. Wow. So there's a, there's a lot of appetite for human neuroscience and there's a lot of appetite for, you know, more systematic linking to clinical work. And of course, uh, as is now kind of customary for better or for worse, I think perhaps for better is um, a lot of computational neuroscience, right? So theory, I mean, as I've, so it's, it's a trope, but I keep saying it. I mean, we're, we're getting better and better at, at big data, but we have not gotten better at big theory. So hopefully we can help recruits, you know, sharp young people to tell us what we're doing wrong, what we can be doing better, where the opportunities are and so on. Okay, cool. And, and uh, so I always wondered though, still, uh, regardless of, of, uh, of, you know, the fact that you have two jobs across the Atlantic, you know, mm -hmm. how, so how do you generally, I, I always wondered how you manage your time. I mean, how do you, you know, 
very poorly. <laughs> I manage my time very poorly. And initially, I had this kind of um, well, you do it for idealistic reasons, and you know, partly and partly for opportunistic reasons, and partly for vanity. And probably all of them are bad reasons. But the I started out with this notion of oh, this is very simple because you just say, well, you know, I'm going to be six weeks here, six weeks there. It's not that difficult. You know, flights are easy and frequent, and you know, there's whatever. COVID notwithstanding, there's probably 10 or 20 flights a day between these two cities. So it's not problematic from an administrative point of view. Yeah. But of course, it quickly turns out that you're always needed somewhere for some random things where you just have to be, you know, it's that are not Zoom based. And yeah. Yeah. so in the end, I have been going back and forth the last years, a little bit more kind of a la carte, right? So sometimes I'm like, I show up in one place and I'm there for a week and then I return. Huh. Other times I've been there for, for a couple of months and return. So it's been more need-based but it's possible and i think now that we've gotten you know for better or for worse we've gotten good at using a kind of zoom-based lifestyle i've learned more about what can and can't be done at a distance yeah and yeah. that's actually good i mean i think <laughs> that, that that's helpful and it's not really necessary to go to every damn event because why bother yes yeah so it's not a good idea so i mean you have to have a good um you have to have be able to sleep in various places and have a circadian clock that switches rapidly. But there's also something very joyful, I think, about getting the different perspectives from, you know, US-based science and European-based science yeah. regularly, right? I mean, it's kind of cool to get off the plane and read, you know, what are the newspapers saying here? Or what's kind of the, what's yeah. the vibe? What are students and postdocs worried about? And often it's very similar, but it's not identical. Yeah. You know, it has to do with how science is organized, how funding is organized, how institutions are organized. And I've come to appreciate the, the different places a lot, actually, because they're just quite different in what, what's offered. I mean, there's something about the frenetic pace. So I'm sitting in my NYU lab right now, which is really small. Yeah. I mean, it's really small, right? <laughs> it's just like, I don't know, there's like a couple of rooms where everyone's kind of sitting in the same, you know, it's like the NIH, right? So if you just squish yeah. into one office and there's like a bunch of desks next to each other and, and, and there, but there's something also very um, stimulating about the intensity of that and it's, it's slightly insane and we actually work too much in principle and so when I come there and when I go to Europe I'm like well this is, they're, they're taking it's pretty chill you know weekends are a serious thing yeah and the day is a serious thing holiday is a serious thing uh, and so I'm learning to appreciate the two, uh, the, the kind of different ways of living and what works and what doesn't work. And um, it's, it's a chance to, to kind of go back and forth. Yeah. Well, that's cool. That's actually, I mean, definitely you have unique, I don't know anyone else who, who does, you know, with that time's constant, you know, going back and forth like that, getting this constant. Uh, yeah, I'm sure it's stimulating. And uh, if you can handle it. I mean, sometimes it's insane, right? Sometimes you're like, well, this is just a mistake because you're adding complexity. Also, you know, personally can be difficult. Yeah. But you have to have an, I mean, so the, so I have to say one thing that makes it, you know, for, for people entertaining this kind of crazy thing, it's helpful to have some kind of principled embedding in the different places. So I would not have done this if I didn't have a kind of personal connection to Germany. Right? Yeah. So I, I spent my high school years there. My father and my sisters live there. I speak the language. So I have a bunch of reasons that it's not crazy, right? So it's, uh, I have a sort of biographical connection to the place. I would imagine it'd be quite different if you're sort of disconnected, if you yeah. don't have some kind of grounding. I think that would add a lot of stress. 
Yeah. So, so I think the fact that it's sort of personally uncomplicated and yeah. it takes a little bit of the edge off. And I don't think I would have taken a job like this or, or tried to sort of bridge two different kind of jobs and cultures uh, if they were really misaligned or more, more distant. I think that would be too, too challenging, actually, because yeah. you'd spend someone's life on just managing your life. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, yeah, yeah, no, you're right. You're, I mean, that's, uh, yeah, it's hard enough for, uh, right, just in, most people in one institute sort of going, but, um, but, but definitely what's interesting to me also is that, right, at NYU, not only do you see the energy and the different culture, but I mean, is the agenda different? I mean, is it, is it, uh, is, is it more like maybe cognitive neuroscience? At yeah, I mean, so it's been, so I've tried to align the, the things as best as possible. In fact, I, I founded together with some colleagues a kind of joint research center, which we called CLAIM, the Center for Language and Music and Emotion, to work on areas of investigation that are where the both were, that are sort of, you know, to use the cheesy grant word synergistic or for interdisciplinary cross-fertilization. And just, uh, that's because th those are areas of research that are particularly strong in, in both places and have interesting and, uh, ways to add to each other. And that's been going okay. But yeah, the agendas are a little bit different, especially now as I'm switching more to systems neuroscience. Certainly the work at NYU is firmly grounded in kind of cognitive neuroscience theory yeah. and much more close to, let's say, linguistic research. Right. And, and the work now in Germany is really just embedded in a systems neuroscience, thing, right? Yeah. So where, where your average colleague that you run into is working on a single unit recording or on a neuropixel recording in a mouse or in a marmoset. Yeah. And so that's a little bit different because the, you know, the data are different, the lab stuff is different. The, and, and there's, you know, I, I, it's always good to remember that the, you know, those of us who work on human stuff, it's pretty nice that we can just simply call up a person and say, Hey, we're going to pay you 10 bucks or 20 bucks, come in for a couple hours and we're going to stick you in a machine. Yeah. And we don't spend six months training them to make right. an eye movement to the right if they see red. <laughs> it, so it's good to remember that, that, that when you're doing the, the often very satisfying neuroscience that can come with animal models, there's a long time horizon, right? So if you're working with a rhesus macaque to, on, I don't know, reaching or you know, decision-making using eye movement control or something, it's months and months of training to get to the state where the experiment can then be executed. Yes. So we have that, so on the one, so we do have certain luxuries that we can explain to any participant who walks into our lab, look, when you see that, press that button. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, right. That's kind of cool. Well, yeah, that is, that is uh, but of course, Right, there's always a risk of... Uh, yeah, and the price we pay is, I mean, so we can do a lot and the price we pay is, of course, you know, resolution or let's say granularity of biological question. Yep, yep. And that's... And, yeah, which, which actually I'll get into a little bit later about, you know, why, you know, the field probably needs more of this cross, mm. you know, subdisciplinary mm. uh, interaction in that regard to sort of maybe, maybe we can learn something from either side in terms mm. of how to form our questions the best. When I was when I was looking into sort of you know what what's been going on in your life, it seems that I, it struck me that uh, I mean there's been this uh, cognitive neuroscience series uh, mm -hmm. that's been I think uh, Gazzaniga has been in mm -hmm. charge of that for a long time. Now it looks like you're the senior editor, so mm -hmm. that's a you know a tome that comes out like every every five years every five years yeah. and so what is that all about for people who don't know yeah um, i mean probably everyone's heard of mike zaniga who's sort of formative uh you know 
founding cognitive neuroscience. And he's been really important in getting us sort of as a field organized in terms of having summer schools, the founding a journal, the society, the annual meeting. So he's been very kind of, uh, he and friends and colleagues have been very strong advocates of this for, for 30 years or so. I think the first meetings were probably like in the early nineties or 90 or so. Yeah. And one of the things that Mike organized over the years is every five years, a kind of more sustained meeting uh, where actually the people who participate other than the faculty are fellows, which are you know, typically postdocs who've been at a previous meeting. That's a sort of pre-selected to be particularly engaged in the field. And out of this comes a very fat book called The Cognitive Neurosciences, very in bait. <laughs> And uh, it's been a kind of, it's, an, it's a fascinating book to look at always because it's sort of an inventory of where we are, right? Where, and, and it's in my role. So I, I took it over now uh, as the senior editor, which is, you know, I'm really excited about. It was a wonderful opportunity. Yeah. And to begin to, to um, have it reflect a slightly different emphasis. Right? So things have changed in the last years. Yeah. I tried to expand the scope a little bit in terms of the topics and add some things that had, and you know, it'll change. You can't, you, you know, you don't want to do everything with one fell swoop. You want to be a little incremental. There's been some wonderful historical work. I tried to add a bunch more stuff on computation. And I also tried to expand the editorial representation to be a little bit more inclusive. Okay. Broad based in the tip, all the necessary senses of inclusivity. Yeah. And um, so each section has, you know, more than one editor, for example. And it's, I tried to find a kind of richer balance. And it's, it's actually really fun to work on. It's a lot of work because this thing is a monster. Yeah. Um, but it's really fun. I mean, for any, you know, any person at any stage of their career, simply to leave through some section and see what's going on. Look at some of the figures yeah. and what are people doing in, I don't know, decoding fMRI or yeah. taking a look what's going on in, you know, in, uh, in memory research, in action. I mean, what's, and it's, it's kind of exciting to see, and it does change, actually. Yeah, yeah. And That's... you can track what stays the same, what changes, and some of it is, of course, methodology-driven, obviously, and some of it is, you know, there's, every now and then there's actually a new idea. Who knew? Um, <laughs> And some of it is also a celebration of, uh, or, or let's say not a celebration, I should say. Uh, some of the, the work shows us digging our heels in and being conservative. Interesting. And so, uh, you know, and saying, well, this, this has kind of worked so far. So let's just kind of go with it, right? <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're interested in the sense of Tom Kuhn, right? So it's kind of normal science. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, but it's a, it's a really exciting opportunity to do and the discussions are fantastic and you just kind of see where, where things are, where are we in our field right now? Where yeah. Is there, is there a meta? So, so uh, yeah, I can imagine, I mean, it would be very cool to actually have something similar to that to, you know, fMRI or, yeah. or whatever, but, um, and actually this sort of relates to a question I was going to, a discussion I was going to get into later as well, like, you know, the field of neuroscience or the field mm -hmm. of cognitive neuroscience. You know, it's nice that you have this book that summarizes these five years. Are there any, um, is there any sort of like, you know, meta paper on that, that sort of describes, oh, here are the models. Mm -hmm. Here's where there's gaps. Here's where there's not understanding. I mean, I mean there's, like, yeah, I mean, there, there's not, I think, explicit barriers. I mean, one hopes, of course, that the editorial summaries of each section provide a little bit of context and say, like, hey, look, you know, this is where things are going. 
Yeah. I mean, when you attend the meeting itself, right? So the way this works is you attend the meeting, the faculty give a talk, and then you know, soon thereafter, the people have to submit their chapters. Okay. So it's very, and you know, so it's very kind of on, it happens extremely rapidly. Yeah. And you do see certain trends and, and interesting things appear. So, you know, unsurprisingly in the last years, one of the topics that has been, that has come up and has been debated a lot is, is kind of the notion of big data versus let's say deep data. Yep. Right? Yep. So that has been, because it's, across it cuts across all the fields like whether you're a memory researcher vision researcher language researcher right so there's been a lot of this can we get you know giant corpora using nlp methods can we record you know hundreds of people i mean so so this has been um there's been a bit of a, a emphasis on engineering uh, and that's both good and bad it reflects yeah. that we're more sophisticated in our technical approaches it doesn't follow that we're more sophisticated in our conceptual approaches. And yeah. I was sort of struck by the fact that, of course, you listen to some of these talks and you're like, holy shit, it's unbelievable what you can do. It's amazing, right? Yeah. But then you're like, well, but what was actually learned? What was the question that was actually answered? Yep. Like, so, I mean, so on the one hand, I'm I, like, I'm because I'm, you know, we all like to play with these big toys. You look at the stuff and you're like, oh my God, so cool. And then, you know, later you're like, wait a minute, something's something's not right here yeah do we, so that was a lot of the vibe i got the last time it was like i was simultaneously just struck by how cool the technology is getting every year uh, but the yeah. ideas aren't getting that much smarter our right. ideas are still the same they're basically 19th century yeah yeah and it, it, right there's there's less using people are more like still you know waiting in the data and trying to get it make you know sort of getting new data and seeing, oh, there's there's more than we imagined, but without stepping back yet, I guess, as a field. Um, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, we, we, we are embracing the the fact that we can just, it's, it's just exciting that you can acquire so much, so much data for any given domain, but we're, the question is, are we in danger of substituting that for, let's say, analytic thinking, not just an analysis of data? Yeah, and yeah. Yeah, and actually, that's so. We'll we'll delve into that because that's actually the, the you know sort of a, been a recurring theme in many ways. Um, you know, when I talk to other people like who are doing sophisticated modeling or network modeling or yeah. whatever, you know, it goes to the question of of understanding in that yeah. regard. Um, but just before we get to that, I just wanted to 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 jump a little bit into sort of you know early earlier in your career. I think I've known you for at least over twenty years. Oh yeah, long time. Um, uh, and I remember seeing. I think when you were at the University of Maryland, I think I, I, I met you at, at a yeah. cognitive neuroscience meeting. But yeah. and and it seems like you were you even then you were very you know uh, strident and you 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 had your opinions and it was it was it was great. Uh, I'm not I'm not shy. Let's say yeah. <laughs> and and you know I know Greg Hickok as well. Uh, and and you sort of uh, you know uh, became. Uh, at least one of the main contributions that you had so far was this uh, advancing um, uh, essentially the dual stream model of, of, of language processing. Um, uh, so could you, I mean, it's interesting because a, a lot of people, you know, in science right now, and, and I, I see this in a lot of postdocs and a lot of graduate students that they just kind of want to do their thing. And they're always, they're, a lot of times they're happy sort of confirming models and say, mm -hmm. well, it, disagrees with that so everything's cool um you you and greg seemed like you you 
you, you realized something wasn't right and, and you put something forward and how, yeah. what was that process like? I mean, what, what, and then how did you then go about supporting it or developing yeah, it? Was a good, I mean, it's an interesting question. I mean, it was a, a, an interesting set of ideas and struggles. So historically, was, you know, so Greg and I were, we overlapped a bit at MIT. I was a PhD student and Greg was a postdoc and we didn't actually work much together then just kind of knew each other and appreciated the work. And then um, we both carved out kind of similar things and it, it started with some observations. You know, when you, when you read anything about brain and language, whether you're studying linguistics, psychology, neuroscience, you know, you open the chapter, you get to the, uh, you look at the chapters on vision and they have these richly structured, uh, let's say the Feliman and Van Essen diagram of the 30 to 50 areas and the connectivity. And you're like, well, well, that's because vision is complicated. Yeah. Yeah. Then you get to the language chapter and you, you get a picture of a left hemisphere and, and, and it has two blobs in it. One yeah. in the front, which we call Broca's area, and one in the back, which we call Wernicke's area, and then there's an arrow in between. <laughs> and that has been, you know, the kind of uh, standard model and it still is in, for the most part, textbooks still the standard model. Now why is, so, and it's invariably a left hemisphere. Now, you should respect that model that, you know, that really is due to insights from the early 1860s and ultimately was sort of summarized in 1885. Okay. So if you now go to the hospital because you have a stroke, you will be diagnosed and your treatment will be planned on the basis of a model from 1885. Yeah. This should give you pause. Yeah. <laughs> now, yeah. on the other hand, it's impressive. The resilience is impressive because that means that the thinking of these folks or smart people in the 19th century was sufficiently sensitive to, to some distinctions that it has real clinical value, which is incredibly impressive. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. but it's still, then you're like, you know, we're, you're a grad student or something and you look at this and after a while, like, you know, you go to your lectures in grad school on vision, on hearing, on touch, and you see all these extremely complex architecture. And then you get to the language chapter and you're like, are you for real? <laughs> Come on. I mean, how naive are we supposed to be? You know? And so, because both of us had an interest in, in really kind of language processing in a more serious, let's say formal sense and, and took courses in linguistics or you know, psycholinguistics, it, you know, it, it, we, we were not so satisfied with that, but we didn't really have a good way to grapple with the problem. And then a few anomalies showed up in the data over the years. And one of the main ones and how Greg and I actually started out was the observation, which is now actually standard <laughs> it was like, you know, people are like, yeah, yeah, that's known, that's trivial. But I assure you, it was not fun to make. It was the notion of that actually is a very, very substantial bilateral contribution to, to speech okay. process. Yeah. 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 So whatever you looked at, whether it was lesion data, for example, coming from very interesting things like what's called pure word deafness. Yeah. From the early imaging data, from whether it was PET studies, early fMRI studies, invariably, no matter what kind of control condition you had, and that, of course, didn't fit the picture because you're supposed to have a very clearly left lateralized system. Yeah. So one of the first, so the first paper to some extent that Greg and I wrote together was to say, to try to kind of rehabilitate the complexity of that simple issue. And boy, were we unpopular with that. <laughs> I mean, that was a paper we wrote together in 2000. And um, it's pretty widely cited paper. And the, but and I think Greg actually still has the old reviews that we got. But we were, you know, just called vile and stupid and, you know, insulted as complete, you know, like, wow. how could you possibly think such a thing? We've known for a thousand years that it's different. 
But I mean, we were just, I mean, we were young and we didn't, you know, we didn't have any horses in that race. We were just trying to sort out what was going on. So you're just like, you're citing, okay, so, okay. Yeah, right. and we, we just looked at the new literature and like, wait, the, something's, something's not right. It seems like the much easier theory here is that it's actually, there's a clear bilateral contribution to that particular set of subroutines. Yeah. And we have to deal with it. We have to incorporate. So that was the first step, simply to establish the kind of very clear bilateral structure of some of the processes. And that, and when we were pretty young, some of the reviews we got in the comments, there were, you know, it's, it's easy to sort of, Take it, <laughs> laugh about it now. Wasn't that funny when we were young? Because you're not used to that kind of review. Yeah, yeah. Some senior people telling you you're some kind of moron, you know. Wow. <laughs> so wow. it was. I mean, it was the most banal thing. And now, if you look at it, you know, the, here's so open parenthesis, ironic comment. When we were so when we were starting out that way, we were considered completely idiotic and didn't. I mean, we. I think we got one letter saying you don't. You clearly don't know anything about the field. And stuff like that. So we're like a little hurt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> whatever, we chopped away because we were young. We were just kind of like trying to get tenure or whatever we were doing, at the, or we were postdocs, I guess. And, and then um, now, so we were wildly derided. Now, a lot later, when you go to a lot of talks, someone will show that picture of the model that we developed over the years. And that's now considered the you know old white guy model that's boring and must be wrong. So. We never had the good years. First, we were hated for being you know, outrageous, and now we're hated for being like the establishment. <laughs> so we're like, when is is there a good part here? Oh <laughs> okay, yeah, but the the observation. So it was actually driven by by empirical observations that were really a mixture of both neuropsychology, so patient deficit lesion correlation, and the earliest imaging studies that were the first ones. You know, of course, were based on PET studies. And then from the early 90s on fMRI studies. Yeah. And that was really a revelation. And it's a, this day for me, it remains really interesting that there is such a disconnection between the data you can get from neuropsychology and from imaging. Interesting. That, and that's still true for a lot of domains, actually, right? There's a lot of cases where there, there's not a really particularly compelling alignment between deficit lesion correlation in patients and what you get from, let's say, a very let's say thoroughly and carefully done fMRI study. And that gives me a little, you know, both are really important sources of evidence for trying to understand what we're trying to understand, like how yeah. the human brains work. But it, it's, a, it's an interesting problem in its own right. Yeah, so, I mean, right, with, uh, with imaging data, obviously it's hard to, you know, with, with lesions, you, you get a sense of causality, but with imaging, it's, it's, uh, it's more, it's impossible to tricky to, to get at, you know, what's essential. Um, um, yeah, you have these methodological kind of um, restrictions, but it was, uh, you know, it, it's it's clearly critical to sort of be sensitive to these different kind of data. Certainly, for example, when you're talking about patient work and clinical work, where you, uh, of course, an individual right. patient is, you know, his or her own most urgent case. Yeah. It's not particularly, you know, statistical regularity is no substitute for personal misery. I mean, yeah. you have to, your data has to be clear for that person. So, so just to ask a little bit more detailed. So, um, so you basically saw. I mean, obviously, with with neuroimaging data, you see more of a bilateral. Um, yeah. uh, there's also a ventral dorsal sort of. Uh, uh, right. So that's the next step. So then we. So we. This the notion of bilaterality, which is now sort of banal and uh, you know, pretty much like that's that's a known known. Yeah. Uh, that's if what you really know. Though is it is it like really known if the if it's bilateral? Well, the particular. 
Yeah, I mean, what the particular computational contributions are, are of course under debate, but that's true for every region. Right. right? So what's, so we have, so people have different, uh, you know, very, very, you know, rich and interesting theories. Jeff Binder has a very detailed understanding of what happens in the earlier, you know, bilateral things versus what happens downstream. I, you know, I have a story, Greg has a story, a lot of people, I mean, yeah. so, but that's, whether that would be on one side or both sides, that's simply trying to understand we don't have a good grip on, well, what are what are the primitives? I mean, yeah. what is the unit we're looking for? So that's a bit more on that maybe later. Yeah. So the next step was to then figure out, to try to embed this more in, a, in the biology literature in a slightly different way. So once we had established the bilateral, established in the sense of postulated, um, <laughs> the conjectured, um, we, one thing that both Greg and I were inspired by, and that really was a driving conceptual idea here and remains so, and I think why this is actually a useful model, even though it's you know, a first approximation of a model, right? And was the, was the very, very influential work by um, Leslie Ungerleiter and Ward Michigan at the NIH on multiple streams in the visual system. Yeah. And that was very, and so they summarized many years of work that had been done in, for instance, at Hamster by Jerry Schneider and my other people, but they, these extremely elegant and highly influential experiments from the, mostly summarized in the early eighties. And you know, uh, so Leslie, who you know, is a really amazingly influential and important neuroscientist for many of us. Yeah. Uh, and Mort likewise, showed and mostly based on rhesus data these this very important distinction on what then became this notion of what and where pathways and um we were very inspired by that it was extremely useful so we thought well what would that be like in a language case so there's no really notion of where there's a notion of what namely you have to figure out well what are, what are we trying to say to each other right so what are what's the vocabulary how do you put these things together what's the meaning you derive that's but the yeah. where notion is a bit more complicated. Yeah. And so we then suggested in a paper in 2004, which is still actually my favorite paper of the ones that Greg and I have done, a paper in cognition, um, that you really need the kind of dorsal ventral distinction to capture a kind of mapping to what type of problems, like what is be, you know, what's the content, and more how type of problems or a sensory motor interface. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. the logic is like, look, you know, there's two things you know you have to do. You have to be able to hear stuff and you have to be able to say stuff. Yep. And those things are based on slightly different coordinate systems, right? So the, let's say the mapping from an auditory signal to something that's stored in your head is let's say some kind of form of uh, a spectrogram or some, you know, you go from an acoustic representation to something that we don't understand that's stored. And we genuinely don't understand that. And likewise, you have to be able to go to a motor representation. And that's quite different, right? That's using a joint space. You have to program articulators. So what we were trying to grapple with there is, well, what are those mappings? How do you map from a sound which starts as some kind of biomechanical wave to yeah. either a format that allows you to derive meaning or to a format that allows you to derive um, motor commands? Yeah. And that was actually the original idea to the original dual stream idea was to actually have dorsal and ventral distinctions borrowed from the interesting insights of vision and saying, well, if that's a principle of cortex, how would that cash out for the speech recognition case? Yeah. And then we developed that further by looking at, you know, again, imaging data, patient data. And then we summarized all that in a paper in 2007, which has become a kind of you know, well-known well paper and, and, and saying like, look, from our point of view, 
this kind of dual stream model captures a lot of the things that has bilateral structure for the recognition process, and then it has this dorsal ventral distinction for mapping to um, for mapping from sound to meaning and mapping from sound to sensory motor output. And of course, that's still very coarse. But yeah. what's useful about that is it's sort of a it's a test bed to develop more detailed hypotheses. Like, what would it be? Where do you map from here to here? What does that mean about the format of representation neurally, computationally? How do you, so it's been a quite productive research program in that sense. Uh, yeah. And it's been well re received in the sense that it sort of goes, takes a really substantial step beyond the original language and brain model. And it aligns in important ways with work that colleagues have done, right? So um, um, Sophie Scott and Joseph Rauschecker at the same time in 2009 published a very influential paper. They initially pushed a little more on the what where distinction because you know Joseph of course was also at the NIH and influenced by Leslie and Mort's work yeah. and all of us were influenced by that because it's such a fun it seems like such a fundamental principle right where that anatomic distinction seems to have some you know cash out some computational difference in what's being encoded or decoded or represented right so the brain is somehow organized to say look let's subdivide this task into these subtasks yeah and that's one of the principal distinctions and so so there was a sort of a coalescence of a lot of different people working on this. And I think there's now pretty much consensus that something like this is on the right track. Of course, all of our initial ideas are you know, way too coarse, but I think there's, it's not crazy. I mean, it's, uh, or let's say it's not insane. I mean, the models okay. might be crazy, but it's not insane. So. Yeah, and so that actually brings up um, des design paradigms that, that actually pull this apart. I mean, how do you, you know, would it, would it be, would it all be based in, be, you know, subtle behavioral uh, tasks mm. and measures, and 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 then you know, careful modeling uh, or careful mapping of of then what's what's corresponding to this. Or I mean, how would you advance or establish this further? Um, you know, what would be the strategy? Uh, yeah, I mean, the the, the so so the um, I think the appeal of something like that is so. I mean, as you probably you know, figure I'm I'm a uh, you know I'm a there's such a thing as a radical Marian or something like that. So I'm very, I, mean, I, I find it extremely helpful to think, think about problems in the context of the way David Marr yes. formulated to think about problems. So, so David Marr famously uh, in, uh, said, look, you know, if you have complicated problems that a you know, nervous system solves, a really productive way to break it down is to think about at the most abstract level, what you call the computational problem. Like, what is this for? What are you actually trying to accomplish? Let's say yeah. it's stereopsis. And then he said, well, then you need to actually specify what are the representations and algorithms that allow that to be calculated, as it were. Yep. And then finally, what is the implementation level of description? And I've always found that it's just a really helpful guide to think through a problem. And so yep. this dual stream thing is very much like that and allows you to formulate questions at these different levels of, of approach, right? So first of all, at the computational level, yes, you, here you really want subtle designs because you want to be drawing from what we know about linguistics. It would be very strange not to take advantage of what other fields have actually learned. And if you're trying to study the neural basis of language processing, you should know something about language. Yes. Otherwise, it's just weird. <laughs> like, you can't just follow your intuition. <laughs> language is really complicated, just like vision is. You can't yeah. just say, oh, I see color. Like, it's, you have to actually get into the minutiae. Yeah. And, so there's a kind of, so you can draw from computer science, from linguistics, from experimental psychology, from all these rich fields that have really contributed what we basically know, right? So that would be 
So you can come from that point of view. Uh, likewise, you can come from the more, you know, let's say neurobiology or cognitive point of view, like really try to understand the structures, their connectivity, you know, what's really the linking between, let's say, superior temporal gyrus and posterior parietal cortex. And how do you go from, you know, what are the various tracts that connect to inferior frontal cortex? What's going on there? Yeah. And is it, you know, why is it four tracts or six? And what, what are the targets? What are the origins? So you can add, and then finally, the most difficult part to my mind is, the intermediate specification of Mart, like what actually are the representations in algorithm? Right. And that's where we're struggling the most, if you ask me. Yeah. So, so yeah, along those lines of, of computation algorithm and implementation. Uh, so, right. So the, it seems that the, you know, if you, if you make maps that, that are modulated by a task, it shows you kind of, you know, once again, still it's sort of like where it, it occurs mm -hmm. and it's, to some degree how they interact. What, what's always interesting to me is that still, um, I mean, we can do that and, and that will give us more fine detail and, and help us guide our models of, of maybe what's being computed. But as far as the actual algorithm, um, you know, do we have an idea as to, as to what is, I mean, you know, what even a computation looks like in that regard? I mean, uh, in terms of like, like um, you know, certainly we can say, well, these, these neural ensembles uh, at various levels of processing sort of feed into others and, and, and you know, uh, go from the sound to the abstract representation. But, uh, uh, and, and, and certainly doing brain mapping can pinpoint more where that is, but uh, how do we get, how do we get, to, and obviously single neuron recording can maybe get more of the temporal resolution at certain areas, mm -hmm. um, but, but how do you get at, you know, um, the, what, a, what, what the actual, what's actually going on at this sort of intermediate level of uh, between neurons mm -hmm. and areas, you know, what's, you know, that still seems like a mystery. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, yeah, like, I mean if, if, if you and I knew that, we'd be very rich and famous. I yes, mean, the, the, yes. <laughs> I mean, the, the, I mean, I mean, you know, I err here on the side of the letting the kind of, let's say the cognitive science or the behavior take a more leading role, right? And so, and partly that has to do with the fact that um, I'm, you know, there's a lot of people who've recently written like really fun and interesting papers about, there's a really famous one by Jonas and Cording about, you know, can you tell from a, a microchip, can you tell, figure out what it does just based on a neural recording? And I'm, you know, and, uh, John Krakauer and a, and, and a few friends and colleagues and I wrote a paper some years ago calling uh, saying, well, look, you know, you really have to have, in some sense, the primacy of behavior because the way we're doing neuroscience at the moment is we're trying to take the leading edge, be essentially the, to speak in Marian terms, the implementation level. So we do some really clever neuroscience yeah. and we have a lovely characterization of, you know, this aerial or this laminar thing or whatever is going on. Yeah. And then, but then what? Yeah. And your linking hypothesis is yep. very, like, how do you actually do the forward model and saying, yeah. And once I know this circuit, because when I open the car, this is how it's wired up. I know it's doing multiplication, but it doesn't yeah. work that way. Right. Yeah. So you have to do it a slightly different, uh, different approach. And so what we argued in the paper a few years ago, which is, you know, definitely got people's blood pressure going. It's a great uh, paper. Yeah, it's a fun paper. I think it's good to it's good. It's actually a useful paper, I think, for students and postdocs to take yes. a look at because it goes in a slightly different because we're, you know, coming from five of us from very different parts of the neurosciences got together to sort of 
debate a lot and try to figure out why are we stuck with our things. And uh, most of us are sort of admiring, let's say, the circuit cracking that can happen, let's say, in rodent models. And in the end, we concluded that what's missing for all of us is just really precise, carefully, you know, kind of curated and theoretically motivated behavioral work that sort of should motivate the hypotheses we ask of the nervous system. Like oh. say, you know, look, based on these 20, 30, 1,000 experiments, we're very confident that these, whatever, two stages or three things have to happen. Yeah, yeah. You should take that and, and approach your friendly neighborhood circuit cracker and say, look, buddy, we know these things have to happen. You have to do multiplication and then convolution, God knows what, right? Whatever yeah. your theory is, <laughs> you need to show me a circuit that can accomplish that. Yes, yeah. And yeah. it's not the other way around. So we argued, so I, and I'm in favor of, certainly in my, uh, to, to let the kind of carefully decomposed behavioral studies help us ask the questions that we can now ask with these cool um, neuro techniques. Yeah. Without yeah. very well worked out cognitive science and behavior, I think we're toast. <laughs> we're stuck because we have so much data now. The data are crazy, right? Yeah. And so how are you going to do it without a guiding question? Right. Right. No, I definitely, um, and, and yeah, I like the idea of sort of yeah, iterating between sort of, you know, you have to come up with the best possible model you have. And, yeah, and I mean, what, what other choice do we have? I and mean, that's, it's been a good model in science so far. So why change now, right? The notion that you, of course we make observations, but we make observations like when, you know, when you yeah. do a new fMRI study with a new machine, you, you make certain choices of parameters and by virtue of that choice, you have implicitly endorsed something like I need to observe this versus, you know, yep. R2 star, I don't know, whatever you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but, but by making a choice, by saying this is actually the field of view, yeah. you're actually, I mean, that's not innocent. It's not, and then I think what people misunderstand is, oh, you're just collecting data. Yeah. Well, no, by virtue of the things, the choices you make in your experiment, whether it's parts of the measurement itself or the task you ask for someone to do. Is it detection? Is it discrimination? Is it listening to a, a, a symphony watching? I mean, uh, it's very, very, um, it's not innocent. That's sort of the message. Right. And, and, and not only, say, you lose your innocence when you're doing an experiment. <laughs> and not only does that sort of hone your hypothesis, I mean, it's great to, I mean, certainly you have to have a hypothesis, but also let's say you get data. I mean, to, to make sense of the data, you have to have a model. Yes. Uh, otherwise, there's no understanding without the model. That's right. I mean, I think that's, I think there's, but, but I, I think you're, uh, and I'm a little surprised that the, you know, maybe it's my advanced middle age or whatever, but I'm surprised that the, the amount of, uh, let's say the enthusiasm for the idea, for the, what's being advanced a lot is I'm, I want a model that simply is predictive. And yeah. I think that's, where I actually differ on epistemological grounds. So I think prediction, there's a very lovely quote by, I think by the philosopher Willard Van Quine in one of his shorter essays, something like uh, just the, the notion of just making predictions, that's what science does when it's still kind of like a baby. Yeah. Once you get good, you're trying to get understanding. Yeah. And that's when things get hard. Right. And I mean, simply having, you know, really, really impressive predictive models, I'm impressed qua engineering, qua computation, but what do I do next? I yeah. mean, it doesn't reveal itself in a kind of 
I mean, I, I'm, I'm nervous to use the word mecha mechanistic understanding, but just understanding of how we, how is something put together so that this experience is generated? It's, you know, how is it that you can look to the left and suddenly see this shape and segregate color from motion and segregate foreground from background and at the same time hear, you know, the sirens are, it's very, very, very complicated. And yeah. it so, doesn't wear itself on its sleeve. Yeah, I mean, do you think that though, I mean, so I, I always like to go back and, and it might be naive, but I go back to, you know, thinking is, is I mean, is the brain, you know, I, I like to, you know, using the analogy of one of the best ideas in science so far is like, you know, natural selection. I mean, you know, Darwin, he didn't measure every single, uh, you know, life form and he didn't, you know, he took, he sort of, I imagine he, he had sort of a, a rough idea. He was noticing some variation and, and he put forth this, this model that mm. uh, without knowing genetics, without knowing, and it, and it was sort of like this elegant synthesis of, of a principle of, uh, mm. uh, uh, and, and so I'm, I'm trying to see if there's something, it might be naive to even try to compare, but is there something in the, the equivalent of that in, in, in neuroscience? Like, is there some principle uh, uh, that's waiting to be derived in some way. I mean, there may, there may, I mean, I think that would be, that would be cool in the sense that uh, the, the amazing thing about evolutionary theory is, is it's causal force, right? It's just, it's explanatory and not just descriptive. Yes. The thing about a brain, I mean, I, I you know, I had this discussion last night or the night before with a bunch of people from my lab, like everybody and their brother is just excited about the notion of predictive coding. Yeah. That's not, uh, you know, that's like and, box and with all due respect to our friends and colleagues who who work and 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 Carl Friston, who's a wonderful scientist, does amazing stuff. It's a bit. I mean, it's it can't be a one size fits all solution that solves all things at all times. Right? It's a well, little bit. I mean, if it but also if it is a one size fits all, is it does it really have uh, you know really teeth to explain yeah. mechanisms? I mean, you can say well, right? It's more of a construct. It's less of a hypothesis to say well. You know, the brain is a predictive machine. We, you know, yes, that that makes sense on some level. It, it's sort of you know we want to model the world as well as we can to. Uh, it might maybe look. I mean, maybe it's just too ambitious. I mean, maybe I mean this is the kind of stuff we talk over you know over a beer. Like what you know is there a one size fits all answer to all of neuroscience? But brains are so complicated and have so many whatever we're currently estimating. Right, human brain we're estimating eighty six billion cells or something like that, of which. 69 billion are in the cerebellum and you know our theories suck there too. <laughs> so, I mean the maybe the fact that it's like I said, it's an evolutionary construct of a long time and it has lots of different bells and whistles and pieces yep. doing the part of your head that keeps your temperature regulated is probably not like the part of your head that makes you know, helps you make a decision. So these heuristics that kind of hang together. Yeah and how why would we imagine a one-size-fits-all solution? That I've never really quite yeah. understood. I mean, was, I mean, yes, there are certain motifs. Let's say, do we believe in the canonical cortical microcircuit? Sure, cool idea. Maybe that's true because it's a really useful kind of a Lego block that you can like, put into your Lego buildings of brains. It doesn't follow that it's doing the same thing because it could differ in the, you know, what are the terminal, or what are the inputs to that canonical circuit? What are yeah. they yeah. doing something quite different? There's no reason to imagine homogeneity at that scale. Yeah. yeah, it would be cool if it were true. Maybe it's, hey, maybe maybe Carl is right and it's free energy, uh, but that's very bold. Yeah, <laughs> as it were. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I mean, to me, I, I always feel uh, to the extent that I that I understand what Carl's trying to say is that it's, you know, it's satisfying. It's sort of like a way to say, well, that, you know, it's almost like evolution in some sense. You think about it, like, that, that kind of makes sense. That could be a unifying principle of generally how things form. I mean, you obviously want to optimize uh, survival and you have to, you know, the better you, you do predictive coding of the environment, the more you can optimize that. In yeah. some but, but that's true. But um, yeah, the actual mechanisms, I mean, once it, that's sort of like a, a question of like, you know, what's the, what spatial temporal scale do these operate? What are, what are the algorithms? What, um, you know, that's, these are still hypotheses that need to be tested. I mean, I you, if I had, I mean, one of the things that's holding me back, certainly, and I think it's uh, is an, an idea that I've been coming across a number of times in the last few years, primarily driven by one interesting scholar, Randy Gallistel, is that we are absolutely bankrupt at our understanding of memory. Huh. And that's a problem. And so he's uh, highly recommended. So, so in, in my own domain, that has to do, for example, with the issue is, you know, what, what you have a vocabulary. You're like a hyper-educated guy, so you probably have 100,000 words stored in your vocabulary. Um, the, those are like the Lego blocks or the atoms that you use. Forget the speech sounds, just, yeah. just the basic vocabulary, like cat. Yes. Right. What gives? Where? How? What format? Is that in Microsoft Brain? Or, 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 or Python? I mean, what's, what's, the, you know, what's the data structure of that? And Forget, forget the representational question. That's the representational question in the MAR sense. Uh, the implementation question is not even, uh, not even on the horizon because basically our implementation question, our, our implementational answer to everything in memory is, oh, it's a synaptic mechanism. It's patterns of synaptic connectivity and activity. Right. So right. you have to ask yourself, is that actually plausible? Can that work? Well, can you potentially answer that question by, I mean, I, I have a colleague of mine, um, He's trying to do, you know, a lot of people are trying to do, uh, you know, uh, theoretical neuroscience where yeah. they're, you know, they have these neural network simulations and, and they, they have these, you know, network attractor states and, yeah. and they all sort of resonate off each other. And, and it might be, you know, the cortex might be some sort of loose associative sort of network that, you know, you say cat and that, that, you know, resonates some ensemble into an attraction. Yeah, that's the standard story, right? But then I mean, things get pretty difficult in terms of the kind of notion of invariances and actually the notion of digital storage of things, of calculating over variables, which you have to be able to do if you're an animal, like you have to be able to calculate the solar ephemeris function. Yeah. So things get things get pretty hairy when you start drilling down a little bit huh. and what's stored and how. And so, you know, just so next time you go running. I don't know, this afternoon or whenever yeah, you're, which you're a fanatic. Yeah, I will go right this afternoon. So, you know, how do you store the number 17? Say? Yeah. Just Talk amongst yourselves. Well, I, you know, I, you know, that reminds me that, uh, you know, we have our cicadas coming out and they, you know, yeah. it's a very basic question. They come out every 17 years. How, how do they count to 17? Yes. How do they count to <laughs> a cicada would have, says, you know. So I think there are some really, really interesting questions to be asked there and to, to and, and across fields, but that's one of those cases where um, suppose, I mean, the reason I'm thinking about this is on this question that you raised of general principles, suppose we actually had a more principled answer towards storage that cuts across domains, like whether I'm you know, storing, let's say a visual object or a word or you know, some, some quantity I need to be able to use like 17 years, 
if we had a more principled answer for that, that would be cool. Yeah. That'd be a game changer, right? Do you think there's hope? I mean, from, you know, in neuro, in, in like, you know, these neuromodeling, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know that neural, if neuromodeling, probably that's the most promising, but the, I mean, the, the, is that a question or is it a mystery? Are we even asking the question, right? And that might be one of those cases where we're maybe just completely barking up the wrong tree. Right? We, we might just be misled by our intuitions. Because yeah. everyone learned, you know, the Hebbian cell assembly. Right. And we're like, yeah, you know, LTP, LTD, you know, it gets everything. And there's, oh, we can transcribe something at the synapse. And there's some kind of interesting stuff. But then when you start like, saying, well, what, what exactly is the, and then what is stored? What's the information? The right. actual information. Yeah. <laughs> where's, you know, where's there an element? Is there a format of, of there must be, yeah. Where's yeah. the Microsoft brain operating system? Yeah. Yeah. And that's getting really hairy. And that's one of those. So, my hope, if I had to put my money on it, we won't know this answer for a long time, but that would have the character of some unification because it would have to hold true across brain areas, in the sense of a real biological mechanism. Yeah. But I don't think we're close to, I don't think we, we may not even be answering the question the right. We might not be asking the right question or asking the question the right way, or we might just be full of shit altogether. <laughs> or it might it might reveal itself to be something, you know, you know, sort of. I mean, I imagine I still have hope that it's something elegant and, you know, sort of uh, intuitively appealing. Well, I mean, one hypothesis is this DNA, right? Huh. So that it's intracellular huh. storage, and then that raises the question of like, okay, suppose that's true. Yeah. Then how do you externalize that uh, to the synapse where the kind of information bearing mechanisms are? And how do you internalize, how do you write information into DNA? And how do you take it out? <laughs> so, but yeah. that's the, the reason that has certain appeal is because it's the only thing we know that has a, basically a digital format. Yes. And that's how you keep the, the, the you know, it sort of stays semi-constant yeah. in that regard. So, so that would be at least a, a, a substrate that could do something like that without being insane. And you don't think you don't think uh, uh, having neuronal ensembles with like you know attractor states or things like that could, is stable enough? I mean, it's sort of. I know. I mean, it's. A, I think that's an empirical question whether it can yeah. handle all the different things we do. But I mean, the the. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's just a really fascinating question. Every time, look. I mean, the fact that we know, let's say, ballpark one hundred thousand words. That's not that much information, actually. Right? right, so birds can store a lot more yeah. weird things yeah. than that, and in terms of what they cache. Or actually, imagine you're a brand new bird, you're born, and you now have to fly four thousand miles for the first yes. time. Yeah, yeah. How are you doing that? I mean, unless you have some kind of way of calculating with variables, and there's no way to do that, right? Yes. Yeah. And so, show me the money. I mean, how is that supposed to work based on experience-tuned uh, things? I just don't get it, actually. That's yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I see. I mean, that's actually the nature of, right. I mean, uh, you know, anyone, uh, you know, all life, you know, has some sort of hardwiring to get them going and then they have to be flexible to adapt. Yeah, and, and how much, I mean, it's always this trade-off, like, yeah, how much how much is stored and how much is acquired, but then what is the acquired stuff totally flexible or is it actually sharply constrained by what you have there, right? What you, you can't do anything. Yeah, and yeah, it, yeah. So it's constrained within, uh, right, right. There's some sort of optimization or this calculation of, of you know, how- Yeah, like a, a cells have a certain, uh, cells have certain, let's say time constants, right? So they have, because of whatever, you know, this is the sort of, you know, ion channels have the following properties and so on. That's just, that's just biophysics. Right? That's just what you, you, you get what you get. Yeah. 
So you can't be faster. You can't be, I mean, you just get that range. So you have to do that range. Yeah. Yeah. Not some other stuff. So I think that's, that's kind of cool and interesting and weird. Like why do, so look, I mean, one of the big areas that I've worked on for the last few years is neural oscillations. Right. I, I was just going to lead into that. That's perfect. Yeah. I was just going to say. So that's big. And, and the reason is because that's just another one of those. Um, so it's of interest to me for very particular reasons. Um, I can talk about it maybe a little parochial and boring, but what makes them so interesting is that they're conserved across size of animals and across very different critters. Yes. Right. So, you know, we talk about whatever, theta oscillation, right? So that's a kind of low frequency ballpark, you know, between four and eight hertz, thereabouts, right? So a few cycles per second. Um, and you think, well, what about, okay, so let's take our brain. Okay, cool. Can measure pretty easily, stick an electrode. In. Okay, what about a mouse? Same. Okay, what about a locust? Same, <laughs> okay. Uh, what, so it turns out that one. So one of the interesting things is that they're so um, so st so stable across like brain size, weird species. Well, I guess locusts aren't weird. They're just different. Um, <laughs> from a locust point of view, they're not weird. Yeah. Um, the, so so there's something very um, something very elementary from a biological point of view of that kind of physiological and. Um, uh, excitability cycle, which is a more neutral way to call oscillation, right? So because the word oscillation gets people all like hot and bothered. But ex excitability cycle, it's more about maintaining, you know, uh, homeostasis. Okay. So that's less offensive because everybody wants homeostasis. <laughs> so when you see that across all, then you're like, well, why are there so many different scales? I mean, if you have a bunch of, so why are you partitioning the world into these different sort of units? And for me, so I just think that's super fascinating. So they are yeah. what they are, right? So from a biological point of view, that's just what you have there. And so right. there's two it's, kinds of, I mean, yeah. so what are you thinking? Are you thinking either those are just the exhaust fumes? Like when you measure that, that's just the exhaust fumes of the brain doing what it does and doesn't do shit for you. Yeah. Or if it's been around for you know a long time in every creature, it could have functional consequences of some form. Yeah, yeah. And, and so that's the hypothesis I've been I've been going for, you know, and with some colleagues for a while, uh, with one very very particular question in mind, which is how do you actually segment an incoming data stream into chunks that you can then do stuff with? Yeah. So there we've postulated it's not particularly deep that you can actually you can kind of capitalize on on um, oscillatory activity that basically locks to certain features and then it gives you a way to sort of chunk what seems continuous into units that you can then do whatever math you have to do. Yes. Yeah. So and that's been a very useful hypothesis, very, very intensively debated. Wildly yeah. unpopular with many and, and, and popular with some, but it's, been, it's actually at least been productive in the sense that it allows you to ask certain questions about how you do the segmentation problem. Well, you know, and I love how it, once again, it sort of, you know, sort of has the same flavor of the dual stream model in the sense that it sort of ties in, you know, kind of, I mean, it's sort of like you're trying to develop a hypothesis for, in a sense, um, of how information is handled in general by- Yes, that's, a, that's the idea. Yeah, I mean, how can you, in this case, it's about, well, how do you, you have to, I mean, well, it, it could be wrong, right? Maybe you don't need to chunk stuff. Yeah. But if you believe the computational theory of mind, so brains do some kind of, you can model them as electrical devices of some form, there has to be some discretization. Otherwise, I just don't know how it's supposed to work. And then, and maybe this is just one possible mechanism to say, hey, 
take about this much and then put that into your calculator. And yeah. Yeah. So, so just to back up one, one little bit, uh, with, as far as the origins of oscillations, I've always, mm -hmm. I've always wondered, uh, you know, what specifically the, you know, the, if you, if you were just drill down all the way into the, you know, the basic, mm -hmm. uh, molecular biology or, or even, you mm -hmm. know, neurons firing. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you're neuron firing, it's a spike. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. how do you go from spikes to oscillations? Mm -hmm. I mean, so, so the best, I mean, so there's a ton of work on that for a long time because it's so, um, it's been such a ubiquitous finding in, in neurophysiology. And I think that the best, I mean, so I think a good way to think about it is like uh, people who come from biophysics and biophysical modeling, I want to say somebody like Nancy Coppell from BU has done very important work on this. So basically the notion is if you take a bunch of cells, you know, and you wire them together a certain way, you yep. think of them as capacitors, resistors, uh, what you get out of certain time constants yep. just by virtue of the biophysics. So yeah. the origin of these are really when you take a bunch of cells and they're connected in, for example, excitatory inhibitory yep. connections, uh, you do a bunch of not very trivial math. And what people like Coppell, who've done this for you know decades, very serious biophysical models, show is that then you end up, for example, with let's say a gamma cyclicity yep. of a certain form. So yep. it really is a consequence of, of relatively low level properties of, of channels yep. and cells. Yep. So it's um, it's like, yeah, you take a chip, you wire it up a certain way, uh, you you know, you know ping the thing, and then you get, for example, maybe a damped oscillator yep. or depending on the wiring. So, the, so there are people who've done this for um, a long time, really at the biophysical modeling level. So that's certainly a level way below what I can really deeply understand or need for that matter. Yeah. But there's a there is basically a, a bottom where they understand right. at the level of uh, the molecular biology and the biophysics of how the circuitry generates these. So at the, at this point, even at the laminar level, right? So they're yeah. very elegant models. Why, let's say, supragranular laminal laminar cells have slightly different, let's say, rhythmicity or cyclicity than infragranular layers. So yes. um, so that's basically what I. The, the, those of us who are more in the cognoro and build on that, we assume yeah. there's a biophysical basis. You get what you get. Those are again, those are your Lego blocks. You can't fuck with those. Yeah. And then the question is, do they do anything for you, or are they just kind of running on the side, or do you not care? And then can you show that they have causal force? Yeah. That's the real question. Right? Okay. So if, you, if you turn them on and off, and yeah. Like, does it mess with your performance, your perception, your production, or whatever? And that's been really the harder part. And that's been the most interesting work. So let's say you have oscillations of a certain time scale, and they really correlate extremely closely with some you know, visual stream or auditory stream or what have you. Does it matter whether they're there or not? Or are they just in, is it just a correlational structure? And that's been very interesting. And I think that the data are beginning to converge on the notion that you really do need that. If you don't have that, you, you pay a huge price. Well, so, I mean, your work actually seems to tie in with that. I mean, you were talking about maybe some disorders like dyslexia or mm -hmm. you know, you know, other things that, that might, there might be therapeutic effects of, mm -hmm. of entraining the rhythm of, of, of speech. Yeah, or, absolutely. I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of work and there's, you know, people have done really elegant clinical work on this. And there's a, but we're still at the level of, I think it's in that sense, early days. And we're here, <laughs> it's one of those cases where I mean, we talked about this a bit earlier where it will be good and important to have more 
systematically constructed research between animal models and human models because we measure pretty coarse things. Like we can use really high resolution MRI and figure out, okay, so we're gonna focus on this lamina. And then we can use, you know, whatever, or the best possible, you know, we could do ECOG or MEG and try to get into the neurophysiology. But in the end, to really get to the nitty gritty, we're going to need to have to go to animal models. Yeah. And yeah. That's of course, and that, that I think that's gonna be very productive, but it's not easy because you can't just ask the same question necessarily. Yes, yes. That's, I mean, we pretend we can, but I think that seems a little bold. Right, right. And I like the idea of, I mean, uh, you know, just to talk a little bit more about the rhythms. Um, you know, I, I really do like the idea of sort of, yeah, I have to look into those papers, but the, you know, if you have some sort of networked with the, you know, neurons with, um, you know, who knows what the size of the network is, but it might could be a micro circuit, uh, <coughs> you can actually create these, you know, these frequencies in some sense of regard. I mean, to me, that sort of feels like an element of something where that could be a, could, I mean, I have colleagues. So, for example, one of my colleagues in Frankfurt that who have, you know, extremely an absolutely brilliant biologist, and Gilles Laurent, who has done this work, for example, working on olfaction in in yeah. invertebrates, right, and showing really, really meticulously where you can do the invasive work at the, you know, what the local contribution to a computation could be. Yes. So my hunch is, you know, reading the stuff that that Gilles Laurent and others to say, well, look, if you can show it. And if it's a conserved property, because it's something very stable about how neurons are wired up, then wouldn't you want to try to use it in a in a bigger brain or for a different function? I mean, you're getting it for free. Yeah. The consequence of the and it would be weird to not to say, well, I have this very big fluctuation of energy. I mean, it's a lot of stuff, right? There's a lot of you know yeah. power being expended. It would be you'd think that evolution is smart to say, hey, this 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 gives me something kind of kind of useful. Yes. Yes. And, the, yeah, so, but we don't know. I mean, it's just, I, you know, I, it's interesting because I, I gave a talk a few weeks ago to a big auditory group where, you know, sort of part, part of my peeps who were extremely skeptical. Really? Very, very skeptical. And for, for good reasons, because they, they, they're, that community is largely populated by engineers. And they say absolutely reasonably that, look, you know, you can get a lot of this simply from a sequence of impulse responses. Hmm. And uh, do you really need the kind of cyclicity that's coming? And I'm and my one as well, I think you do. And here's, you know, we have different forms of evidence, but yeah. and it's still a very, uh, I mean, it's a contentious notion in some parts of the sciences and others. I mean, it's, it's pretty, it's phenomenologically obvious, but the hard part is, is, is this a part of neural activity that we should pay attention to, or that we say in 10 years, like, Hey, we paid attention to it. Turned out to be wrong. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> yeah, and that's actually interesting. To I mean, where, where do you know that it's wrong? I mean, it's, we're still very early days as far as that's concerned. Yeah, just to say, I mean, I, I'm optimistic about that's the kind of problem because it's really about neurophysiology. That I'm optimistic about sort of linking human. You know, that's where you really need imaging, physiology, and animal models, and obviously you need computational expertise to get some kind of grip on this stuff because it's just yeah. so so gnarly. So some smart graduate students and postdocs are going to crack that thing. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's actually, I mean, this kind of brings into the next point of, of uh, um, you know, what is the role of, I mean, so, I mean, sort of backing up a little bit and maybe going a little bit parallel, but, um, the, you know, as far as fMRI is concerned, you know, it's been, the field's been criticized a lot for, 
you know, just doing cartography and, and you know, you're, you're mm-hmm. at where what happens. But that doesn't really, sh- showing where something happens doesn't really explain mm-hmm. much at a deep level. Um, but used, as you were mentioning, in, in combination with, you know, these, these, these models uh, and used in combination with other maybe scales and measure, mm-hmm. it, it, it helps, you know, maybe you can mention it better than I can, but as far as it helps to inform uh, uh, at, at some scale, uh, maybe a, you know, it helps you with know the organization, know where to look. But well, I think, I think it's, it's crucial for theory building too, right? It, it, so for some cases, it could even be decisive. Yeah. And for some cases, it could be certainly crucial. Like, look, it matters a lot to me, for example, if you do an imaging study in which you show that, let's say, spatially disparate populations of cells are actually, still, you know, recruited for this, that task, because... It, yes. you know, it lies, it invites the inference that you really need to do, uh, that has to be respected in your model. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and that could be yep. absolutely, I mean, if you had theory A says everything's the same, theory B says, no, you need two forms of things. That's critical. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and there are these dimensions, right, in fMRI that, right, you look at magnitude, you look at latency, you look at the timings, you look at the adaptation, you can... You get a lot of, yeah, the data set is pretty rich. So I think that's, you know, it would be, we, I mean, you, you just take whatever evidence I think. So maybe this is a point to make here for, you know, for the, it's, it's, for me, what I've learned or what I've learned, maybe I read it somewhere on the interweb. It's really important to make a distinction, a careful distinction between, let's say, observations and data and evidence. And what we traffic in, yeah, sometimes we just make an observation like we're walking. Yeah. But what we traffic in are kind of, in the end, evidence, because we try to say this is evidence against or for or supporting, or and that's a little bit different than just collecting a bunch of stuff. Yeah. And if you have the question formulated in a way that you get the right answer, then maybe you need fMRI, maybe you need ECOG, maybe you need, you know, I don't know, transcriptomics, who the hell knows? I mean, it depends entirely on the what you're trying to explain and what is the right kind of evidence to adjudicate between the alternatives. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. I'm very committed to like, it's, it's, don't, yeah. don't just collect data all the time. Know what it's, what it's evidence for or against or whatever. Right. Right. I mean, having, having this iteration between model and converging evidence, yeah. I, I think is, is, yeah. And it would be nice to actually, you know, try to systematize that I think in the field in general. I mean, I think mm-hmm. it, it seems to me, and maybe I'll shift gears a little bit as well. Um, now we talked a little bit about scale. We talked a little bit about models, um, but it seems to me also that that uh, a lot of pe- graduate students, when they start out, they just you know they're coming up with a question, and then you come up with you know you use the tool that you have, yeah. um, and you do the best you can, and you sort of answer something uh, using your tool. I mean, and I and I and I'm you know my own personal experience when I go to the Society for Neuroscience meeting, um, you know I'm I'm always, you know, I've been going for a long time now and I've al- I'm always overwhelmed with how much there is. And, but I'm also sort of bothered by the fact that, I mean, everything that I look at looks like, oh, well, we're making an advancement. We, we, we saw this extra correlation uh, at all these different scales. And, and I feel like, uh, you know, with any, with, I look at like the field of neuroscience as like a system and, you know, it seems like with any system, you, you need to have better, you know, cross-discipline communication. You know, it seems that, uh, or maybe even principles of how, how, you know, 
a model that's being built that everyone is aware of in some sense. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, that that uh, that so you have it seems like there's a lot of effort, but not much ratcheting forward. Um, yes, I think that's the yeah. I mean that's sort of a little bit with what I am. What I was telling you sort of semi flippantly earlier, which is the you know the difference between let's say big data or a lot of data and big theory. Right. So we have we're just collecting stuff like mad, and we have like you say very few guiding principles that help us organize this stuff. I mean, yeah. like all of us, I mean, I think you and I have had a discussion before, like, should we really just be acquiring more data all the time? We have so much data lying around already. <laughs> Couldn't we actually analyze the shit? <laughs> At some point, I mean, we do, we do like one or two analyses and we're like, yeah, it was cool. All right, let's archive it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's exactly. do the same experiment so again. Much. It's really lame, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's so rich. I mean, it, you know, there's so much. There's so much. And and it does seem like there is, you know, it's part of the culture of neuroscience too. I mean, people, you know, graduate students want to get the degree. They want to establish yeah. their hard won, you know, piece of information. Yeah. But it doesn't seem like, it seems like, yeah, there's too many different domains, but also that go across scales and, mm. and you know, all the way from molecular levels. Well, I mean, so, so take, take, I mean, I think that that's one of the things that was such a, unbelievably important contribution of the work that you know that Leslie and Mort did with those early things of the, the the notion of this you know multiple visual systems had so many consequences not yeah. just for biology but for for computational modeling for psychophysics huh. I mean right so that that was a kind of unifying I don't know if unifying is the right word it's kind of stimulating heuristic right I mean actually the very first experiments I did as an RA had to do with um trying to look at actually potential interactions across putative parallel streams. You know, there were these claims of like, are these streams independent and parallel or is there crosstalk? And you know, some of the very first psychophysical studies I, I did were on actually that. Huh. On, you know, so at, at isoluminance, for example, when you, yeah. you know, can you still see uh, motion using, for instance, uh, something like smooth pursuit? Where you have to actually calculate local motion, even though there's no more luminance contrast and stuff like that. One's supposed to feed, you know, the ventral stream. One's supposed to feed the dorsal stream and stuff like. So, so it, it stimulated okay. behavioral studies and neural studies and so. But that's a that was a pretty coarse grained thing, but it was immensely and it stimulated a shitload of language research. <laughs> so, yeah. And so you're right. Something like that. Some more more unifying model, uh, so model. Some some broader unifying things that we can say, and then you can argue against it. You can argue for it. I'm sure that I'm I'm sure that that and Leslie and Mort got a lot of crap for for there were people who are thinking that's just silly. You know, like what are you talking about? You know, this. Yeah. Yeah. So just an organizing principle that helps you sort of sort where might this fit. Right? Yeah. Yeah, and it would help right guide a lot of. Potential, you know, yeah. it's good to have something to argue against too. You say like, oh. yes, yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, all right, well, uh, so uh, you know, there's always there's obviously so much to talk about. One last thing I'd like to, or two last things. One very last thing, or, or one thing before the last is, is you had an interesting paper. I'm, I mean, I'm just relevant to me because I'm reading his book right now, uh, mm -hmm. The Brain from Inside Out with uh, mm -hmm. uh, Busaki. And, and, and it strikes me as a, and, and I'm trying to get the nuance of, of what you were arguing in your critique of this paper. Um, and it just, a, you know, it doesn't have to be a long discussion, but I was actually, my assessment of his book, at least so far as I'm reading it, is that, you know, it seems to make sense. I mean, we have, you know, the brain is sort of along the lines of, of David Marr's, uh, you know, 
construct. You 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 have uh, instead of you know, you you're looking at it sort of like from the implementation, or you're looking at it from the computation algorithm. Uh, well, I mean, this is where I respectfully disagree. So okay. Yuri, who's actually a friend of mine and a colleague, <laughs> so okay. he's at NYU, and so you and I, so I wrote a pretty strident critique of that book with one of my graduate students, Federico Adolfi. Yeah. Uh, and then Yuri and I actually had a podcast debate about the book on oh, the brand. Cool. Okay, I gotta listen to that. That's, um, um, and, and so the so I actually am a fan of this book. Otherwise, I wouldn't read the book if I didn't think yeah. it's really rich. It's full of you know really absolutely amazing observations and Yuri is just, you know, like amazing neurophysiologist, right? So, but where I actually dis disagree, so I think he does not give credits to the last hundred years of psychology, cognitive science, computation, th that whole field, yeah. in the sense that he attributes a kind of naivete to those ideas that I think is false. And I think he doesn't attribute actually the rich technical knowledge to those fields. So the way Yuri wants to approach this from the, in, you know, the, the inside out versus outside in is to say, look, we can characterize principles of the brain uh, or, or let's say features of brains really carefully. For example, he's into, let's say, oscillations in the context of hippocampal physiology or sharp wave ripples and that kind yeah. of stuff, like, like a lot of things that are there. And then that should actually yield the psychological question we're trying to explain. Okay. Right. So the inside out notion is really driving the question asking from the perspective of the implementation in the brain. Okay. And I think that, so I disagree with Yuri about that stridently. And so Federico and I wrote this paper saying the brain from inside out turned upside down or something like that. Yeah. 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 And, the, um, and we, what we want to say is like, look, even when you think you're doing that, you're bringing an implicit theory to the table. Yeah. Yes. So what we call the implementation sandwich. So you think you're studying something about the implementation, but while you're doing that, in the back of your head is already an assumption that it's about something, right? So for example, <laughs> this is about memory. Yeah, yeah. And because otherwise, you're, you know, why are you remembering that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're why already you? assuming this, uh, this, this. Right. Uh, so it's abduction, right? So we're saying like, look, you know, of course we're sympathetic to the neurophysiology. It's, it's marvelous and critically important. Yeah. But you're bringing in, so before you even do the implementation, you're already an implicitly, um, you have like an implicit model or a folk theory or an intuition, a gut level thing. Because otherwise, I'm sorry, man, why are you sticking an electrode somewhere to look for sharp wave ripples? Right. Like, right. don't tell me you found a sharp wave ripple. And by looking at the shape, you realize that it has something to do with memory. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> that's a really good point that's a really good point but um so so maybe the middle ground would be to keep an open mind about redefining what the um you know maybe maybe there is something more subtle than yeah i mean i think so i i'm I, so so look i mean actually yuri and fade and i are writing a paper together right now so, okay. so so trying to sort out where we see some possible openings because you know we like we're, we're friends we like each other we did we happen yeah. to disagree about this point yeah and so um we're trying to sort out where where this might lie and so maybe i'm too far on one end yuri's far on the other end fade is more a computational guy he's probably you know he'll probably be right because he's the youngest and um <laughs> the idea is yeah that we I mean, so there are some there there's a bunch of ideas in the book they're really important and i think that are on the right track and the question is simply how to sharpen them do you sharpen them by virtue of doing more fine-grained biology or neurobiology or carefully crafted 
you know, cognitive science or computational work, Vermont, right? Yes. To really, you know, get get a grip on those things. And I, and I think I, I do think that Yuri and I roughly agree that something like take the C. elegans thing, right? So C. elegans, you know, every cell, you know, the transcriptome, the genome, every goddamn feature of that stupid little thing, <laughs> and you still don't have a model of how that worm does what what it does. Yeah, which is fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So that's not good news, right? I mean, that should be like, <laughs> because that should be the crown, that should be like the crown jewel of reductionism. Yeah. Right, here yeah. is every goddamn piece of this engine is known and you can't figure out how it's working. That's not good news. Now we're beginning to have some ideas, but if you ask, you know, our premier C. elegans people are like, well, you know, we understand a little bit about why the worm moves to the left or defecation, that's a circuit that's well worked out. <laughs> that's like, you know, there's, I mean, you know everything about that creature. Yeah. Why don't we have a good forward model of its yep. behavior? And so there, so I think my colleague, Tony Moshin here at NYU has a good line about that in the paper he wrote some years ago, that it's, it's an incredibly good test bed to build experiments on. Yes. But the knowledge of that on its own right doesn't explain anything. Yeah. Just like a good, you know, it's like a really good uh, map of the whole thing. And you can now really build on it and say, let's try, you know, let's test this or that. Yeah. But simply having that information, you know, even in all in all its gory detail, does not explain anything. Which is fascinating. Yeah, I mean, you can throw IC, you can throw all kinds of analysis at it, and, and yeah. So I, I mean, I think I read that maybe it was like ten years ago when Tony and I was like, yeah, that's actually a good point, and that's really not great news actually for us. So it was like, oops, <laughs> like. So, that, so I think that that that, that Bujaki's approach here is really good. If we could just, I just want to convince Yuri that he's actually we call it implementation sandwich because the implementation sandwich between an intuitive theory that he brings to the task, and then later on, of course, he's like, oh, and then we, you know, we, we theorize about what's for. But I'm like, yeah, you did that to begin with. Yeah, I'm yeah. not buying otherwise, right? So that's what's called the process of abduction in philosophy. Yeah, yeah, I that's. So, that's a good point. I mean, right. I mean, you know, Ross Prolrock uh, has has written a paper about. I mean, sort of, kind of related in some sense of of yeah, the idea that that maybe maybe we need to update our uh, you know more cognitive uh, models of of like for instance you know a, a, analogously um, you know in the old days people wondered you know they thought living things had life force and mm -hmm. were looking for life force and uh, you realize it's it's more complicated than that. And, yeah. But but then it, but yeah it's like to update those with the data and but you're you're right with Pisaki he starts out with sort of an idea and some sense of what yeah. I mean he would like I mean so he wrote an earlier version of this paper actually uh, uh, actually he wrote a paper that was the early version of the book okay and and so there he's more he's much more clear about well he's sort of very straightforward he's like look and I think that basically the terminology of psychology is bankrupt. Yeah. And I and I I respectfully disagree. Is I mean, like individual terms are probably not that good, but that doesn't mean there hasn't been a lot of technical progress. Yeah. You wouldn't go to someone who works on you know I don't know episodic memory or something and right. say well, you don't know shit. <laughs> you know, they've worked for a hundred years and they have pretty good ideas and you know across levels of analysis. So I mean, they may be not on the right track, but there's technical technical domain knowledge. Yeah, there's a, there's tons of behavior. That, uh, that, I mean, take it. The, the, so, so here's a, you know here's an example I want to. I actually I should write that down. I want to ask Yuri. Suppose you were like Hubel and Weasel, and you're noodling around, you know, like with your old electrodes. And would you ever hypothesize the end stop cell? 
It's just <laughs> very weird, you know, like, unless you said you had a notion of feature. Yes. Yes. So there's a lot of like, it just doesn't come for free. It's not like your data come pre-labeled with like, here's my spike train. And it says, oh, no, that's what I'm doing. Right. So you have to have an implicit uh, yes. presupposition yeah. of some form. And, uh, I mean, it kind of hits on the head what kind of what we do. I mean, we, 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 we create these constructs to, to guide, it's, it's sort of, you know, to guide what we're looking for. And, and hopefully, I guess the point is that you have to iterate and update. Yeah, yeah, thing. that's right. So then, but then you're off to the races, right? Then it's pretty clear, like, oh, okay, this was my idea. Or, okay, that, that's good for that, but it's shitty for this thing. Right. And I have to fix that. So then you're kind of in this, in, in the Krakauer paper, we have a graph like that where you say, like, you know, you start and you kind of, then you ask a question about implementation that tells you, like, you have to sharpen up your idea. And then you sort of, you get better and better in some kind of systematic way. At least there's a research strategy. Yes. Yes, but, and yeah. there's always an initial hunch. I just don't believe that you just, I mean, that you would intuit from an observation of a curve. Yes. A function. Like yeah. if you had seen your first bold curve ever, you'd be like, okay, I could, is that a car? Is it a tree? You wouldn't be like, holy shit, it's, you know, it's oxygenated versus deoxygenated hemoglobin. You'd be like, what? I mean, there's yeah. no way. You would, you would simply not know, right? Unless, and I was like, what does that have to do with oxygenation? We're just seeing some. <laughs> right, right, right. You had, the observation in its own right came with a with a long. I mean, the same thing is true for physics. I mean, people don't build CERN or the you know, yeah, Large Hadron Collider without unbelievably specific predictions to the. I don't good know idea. Theory, right? Yeah. I mean, that would be, and then they're looking for like this, you know, whatever, five sigma little bump in the thing. Not like, yeah. oh, we're just going to build this thing, put some <laughs> things around, you know, like see what's going on. <laughs> Smash some atoms. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, that's, a, that's a really good analogy with, with bold contrast. Uh, I, I haven't thought of that. Um, right. You, you, you sort of have to start out with sort of a, a very clear hypothesis. And it, yeah, I mean, you knew what you were, you were looking for something in particular. Yeah. You're like, oh, my, you know, maybe that's to do with the, I mean, I don't know. You didn't see that curve and like, fuck if I know <laughs> <laughs> and then it gets refined or differentiated or whatever yeah that's yeah. interesting but you needed to start with with some let's say pre-theoretical hunch yes. or heuristic or you know like just you know, just a gut level intuition based on because you read stuff you know stuff you've seen stuff before it's not like you know he's not like blank slate when you come to, to scientific work right and that's what that's what I think people are hoping for like true reductionists sort of hope that the concepts will organize themselves and then be emergent in some sense. Yeah, I, I, just, I, I think that's, I, I like the sort of naive idealism of that. It's virtuous, but it's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, as a practical, just, but it's, it's interesting though, because, uh, you know, the, the whole, with the NIH, they're, they're trying to do like what's called RDOC, where, you know, having, having uh, data-driven uh, recategorization of, of psychiatric uh, classification, yeah, yeah. which is kind of, Maybe saying, "Oh, you know, you know, maybe we're wrong here, and or maybe it's not quite right." Mm -hmm. But it's not like throwing it out; it's sort of iterating in some sense. Yeah. But, and maybe the data will organize itself differently. But, but once again, it goes to the point where, where you have to start with something, and then you start. Know. Yeah, I mean, uh, you're you're looking for something. Yeah, yeah, interesting. All right. Well, uh, one last question. So, uh, you know, I always like to end with some sort of advice for uh, young investigators because I think that, you know, I, I really. I have to say that that I really feel, you know, whenever I hear you talk or whenever I whenever I feel like your impact is so high because 
you know, you have this sort of strident, you're curious, but at the same time, you're bold and- uh, you can, I'm opinionated, that's true. <laughs> you can, but, but you also, you know, you take it all in. I mean, you, you listen as well. I mean, it's not, there's a lot of people who are opinionated who are just, you know, going down their avenue. But, but I think that you have a style that it's really, I think, great as far as science is concerned. I, know, I appreciate that. I mean, I, I enjoy what we do. I think what we do is really cool and fun. And I enjoy, I mean, the most, look, I mean, I think that the most important thing that we get is to work with, you know, students and postdocs who do amazing stuff and we get to watch. Yeah. And, and that's like a great privilege, actually. <laughs> so do you have any advice for young, do, 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 what do you tell your, you know, any, any general? I know, and I, I, well, I say a lot of things. So, well, I mean, the main thing is that if you have an interview with me in my office, you get that thing. So, you have to, so <laughs> one thing I, I prize more than anything else is, is be nice to each other. I have absolutely no patience for shitty behavior. I mean, this is not not okay. Yeah. So you can you're supposed to work hard because it's it's hard stuff and it's cool. Work hard and be nice to people. That's number one. That's like, yeah. And I think it's a good you know and 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 where the be nice is the most important part. Yeah. You can sometimes be lazy, but you should always be nice to people. Always be generous. Don't be ungenerous. It's just gross. Yeah. I mean, that I doesn't mean you can't be a little competitive and get your juices flowing, but. Be a generous, caring person. I mean, my main, but other stuff that sort of has always been on my mind for people, at least you know, in my labs, is that um, you should be extremely thankful for the people who support you, like your parents, your partners, your friends, because you're doing a weird job. You're very, you know, you get to work on something completely, largely bizarre. Yeah. And there are people who are tolerating you, actually. They're tolerating your idiosyncrasies and your passions and your weird hours and your disappointments. You know, we live off of rejections of papers, rejections of grants, uh, battle-hardened, you know. And I think it's really nice to, to just acknowledge that you're, uh, you live in an infrastructure of people who are actually tolerating that you're allowed to do that. So that's really important. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I, think, I, right. I just I think it's really, yeah, just be nice, you know, like be nice to your partners and parents and friends and sometimes even your advisors if you're getting support. Um, <laughs> one thing I've always found really uh, helpful is, and, and I think that's not appreciated enough, and that I, that's come to me much later. I wish I'd known more about that when I was a student stuff, is read old stuff. Um, read old stuff in the sense that um, I'm now going back, for example, one of the things I'm really interested in is this notion of it's a concept of um, efference copy, right? So efference copy is one of those, it's actually also a very nice discussion in Yuri's book. And that's one of the ideas that he and I would probably discuss more. Yeah. Uh, an idea that was really developed in the 1950s, but really comes actually from Ernst Mach, the physicist from the 19th century. It's incredibly useful in terms of things like arm movement control, speech motor control, uh, you know, eye movement control. It's really a, a very important algorithm. Yeah. And, um, like you learn all this stuff from the old papers because they didn't, so the, because what's so cool about the older literature, it's, it's not so full of data. I mean, some of the data you're like, yeah, okay, funny. Although look, it's what they had then. You know, they yeah, had, yeah. But because of that, some of the conceptual analysis is more careful. Huh, yeah. You read, for example, like here's a good book for instance. So one book that everybody should read is Nicholas Tinbergen's The Study of Instinct. Right, so from the 19, so these people who are, you know, very, very careful analysis of the problem. So maybe they had like a shitty electrode or, you know, a complicated species, but 
they thought they, carefully. Very careful thinking is actually, and I, I wish I had learned that earlier to be like, yeah, I should read some of those old papers where people just sat down and said, okay, let's just kind of struggle through this problem. What the hell is going on? Yeah. Not so, and also the other thing that's nice about it is this, the style is so different. Now we write papers that are so formulaic, right? Because we're all trying to suck up to the journals and each other as editors. <laughs> like what happened to the, to the kind of free flowing and carefully curated style where you really developed an idea. So I think reading old stuff is really good. Yes. And what else do I think of to say? Um, well, one saying that I have in front of my, me always is from an, is, an, uh, is um, that I think is really, really hard. And I have not, I have not succeeded with this as you have to free yourself from the praise of others. Um, well, it seems like you've done a good job. I mean, you I know, mean, like you said, all the, all the battles. Yeah, but I, I, it's uh, easy for me to say. I have tenure and I have a good job, right? I mean, but, but I think it's really hard to, to trust yourself and, and yeah, and, and do it for not the praise of others. Yeah, or at least the people that, you know, right. To, I mean, to, I think it's a really hard, I, I, I think it's a really, really hard thing, but I think it's, it's just important for your own, yeah, do it for the right reasons, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and right, exactly. Not, not. Uh, yeah, there has to be a certain self-driven self yeah. sense of. Uh, I get. It. I mean, I'm sure it's you know for you as well. It's just there's such joy in actually watching trainees in your lab do all this cool stuff that I'd never thought possible. You know, <laughs> it is fun. It is I'm really. Fun. I'm just really proud of the people in my labs. You know, I think it's just really cool what they do, and I'm, it gives me that's the biggest joy is the joy I get, you know, it's just the, these discussions and lab meetings and then the good stuff they do. I'm like, wow. And yeah. That's, that's great. I think. Yeah. I, I, I love to, I love to give good advice and then I love to sort of get out of the way and then provide yeah. this uh, yeah. atmosphere. Yeah. I think that's, that's sort of the important thing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been a great discussion. We could have gone. Thank you, Thank you Peter, for having me. I mean, it's really fun to just chat. Yeah. Chat about all kinds of general issues. Yeah, I'm, I'm many, much to think about still. So, all right, thank you. Thank you.